This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I regard the Masonic Institution as one of the means ordained by the Supreme Architect to enable mankind to work out the problem of destiny, to fight against and overcome the weaknesses and imperfections of his nature, and at last to attain that true life of which death is the herald and the grave the portal. The only man who never makes a mistake is the man who never does anything. That was the 26th president of the United States of America and noted member of the elusive and secretive organization known as the Freemasons, Theodore Roosevelt. The Freemasons are an infamous and noteworthy collective of powerful individuals that help form the bedrock of our society. But Masons tend to keep to themselves. Are they hiding something? The truth lies somewhere in the shadows. And when cold, hard facts are hard to come by, open minds begin to fill in the blanks. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. If you like today's show, please leave a five-star review. It helps us tremendously. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're talking about the official history of the centuries-old secretive fraternal organization, the Freemasons. The meanings behind their ancient philosophies and distinct iconography are mostly shrouded in secrecy, but they surround us. Freemasonry symbols adorn public buildings and are even on our currency, all by the design of their incredibly powerful and influential members. Fourteen presidents, nine members of the Constitutional Convention, at least eight signees of the Declaration of Independence, 
kings of European empires, the architects of Mount Rushmore, countless world-renowned musicians and authors, championship-winning athletes, a co-founder of Apple Computers, and the second man to ever walk on the moon, all are members of the exclusive and secretive Freemason organization. Though they're mostly known today for acts of charity, Masons have become a powerhouse in the old world and the new. And it's the same power, symbols, and secrecy that have led to a vast array of conspiracy theories about the Masons through the years. Are they up to something much more sinister than charity? Did they use their charities as a tool for controlling the entire world, akin to the Illuminati or New World Order? Or are they secretly promoting devil-worshipping? And last but not least, are the Freemasons so secretive because they are, in fact, lizard people? Ooh, okay, before we get too far ahead, let's take a closer look at the official inception of the organization. We'll be discussing various terms and Freemason jargon that may seem a bit odd and at times hard to comprehend, but don't worry, that was their intention. The secretive nature of the Freemasons is not something that took long to develop. It was always a key aspect of the group. Historians still have a difficult time pinpointing exact dates, locations, events, and even members integral to the foundation of the Brotherhood. The total cumulative worldwide membership suggests there may have been more than six million Freemasons over the last four centuries, two million of which are American citizens. But publicly disclosing one's Freemasonry membership is not required by Mason laws, so the actual count may be much, much larger. The group doesn't help themselves here when it comes to the facts. They're intentionally muddying the historical records. It certainly feeds the notion that they have something dark to hide. And there's plenty of reasons to speculate they do. The name Freemason comes from someone who works with freestone, a grainless sandstone that's used for ornamental masonry. Masonry is one of the oldest and most well-respected crafts, responsible for designing and building all the most important man-made structures in world history. Some argue the prefix free was used to signal that the Mason was not a slave or indentured worker, that he worked of his own free will and volition. While it may seem harmless at the surface level, only allowing free people certainly came to carry some racial connotations. What the Freemasons believe set them apart from the other older crafts, such as a carpenter, butcher, or tailor, among others, is that Masons have an appreciation for what their forefathers and brother Masons created. They also take the old traditions and ideals of past Masons and learn to expound on them, improving at every given opportunity. Again, this is a claim made by the Freemasons themselves. Why they think that no other craft respects its history doesn't really make sense, but it does show us the mentality of the Freemasons and how they use that to become the almighty, powerful group we know now. The Freemasons were officially established in the late 1300s. An independent group of Masons created what essentially became an oversight committee for all other stonemasons working to rebuild Europe after the bubonic plague. The Freemasons helped establish a better set of rules and regulations for all stonemasons in Europe. While the Catholic Church employed these newly established Masonic guilds early on, their relationship would change as the guilds evolved from proto-labor unions to full-fledged Freemason lodges. These new stipulations helped Masons unionize and put their priorities first when it came to labor and contract disputes. The Freemasons were such great contract and labor negotiators that it became essential to join their group if you worked as a Mason. Any stonemason not involved with the Freemasons found that work was hard to come by, if it came at all. They strong-armed their way into becoming the premier and exclusive labor union for Masons. As the ever-growing and powerful Masonic labor union began expanding its influence to major European cities over the next century, the Freemasons needed a focal point in each city, a place to conduct business on a local level. 
This brought on the formation of the lodges in the 1500s. A Masonic lodge is the basic unit of the Freemason structural pyramid. If local Masons were to fall into any legal trouble, need to dispute a contract, complete training courses, or just simply need some rest, they can find help and solace at their local lodge. Historically, Masons met in actual lodges. But today, a lodge more refers to the local group itself, which meets in a center or hall. For a time, they met in so-called temples, but discontinued that name when they realized it was contributing to an elitist image. Most lodge gatherings begin with a prayer and a headcount of all Masons in attendance and end in a big feast accompanied with song, dance, and drink. When a meeting is in session, it's common practice to have an armed Mason standing guard outside to thwart any intruders or non-Masons from gaining entrance into the hall. And you wonder why people believe the Freemasons to be overly secretive and suspicious. It's certainly a reputation earned, not just given. One of the most pivotal periods for the Freemasons was during the English Reformation in the mid-1500s. King Henry VIII forced the Church of England to break away from the Catholic Church after Pope Clement VII declined to annul the king's marriage in 1527. As a result, King Henry took control of many of the Catholic Church's buildings in England and sold them off to the highest bidder to help fund his new army. The Freemasons found themselves in a bit of a freefall. The Catholic Church was a huge employer of Freemasons. Its ancient buildings required constant repair and construction, and the Masons were the only group to get the job done. To make things worse, in 1547, Henry moved to outright abolish craft guilds, such as the Freemasons, claiming their influence had grown too great and their existing connections to the Catholic Church were too strong. He even took possession of many Freemason buildings. But in late January 1547, shortly after he enacted the abolishment, King Henry VIII died. Nearly two years later, the government repealed Henry's decision, claiming the Freemasons and other guilds were too helpful to not exist. The Church of England and the government became the new leading employers of the Masons. The Freemasons were granted all their lodges back and received many buildings formerly owned by the Catholic Church that Henry VIII had been unable to sell off. The Freemasons used their new cloud and leverage to break off their association with Church of England in the 1550s. Neither harbored any ill will towards the other. The Freemasons simply felt it necessary to incorporate themselves as a standalone entity. Though their request to incorporate was not officially granted until 1666, the government allowed the Freemasons to operate freely if they agreed to work on behalf of the government whenever necessary. Enter William Shaw. Shaw's father, John Shaw, was a highly touted Mason, but was implicated in the murder of a servant in 1560 and stripped of all his property, which threw his family into decades of shame. However, William rose above his father's reputation and found work with Queen Mary of Guise's regent. He moved up the ladder with loyalty and dedication to the Scottish royal family, and in 1580, Shaw signed a pledge to the king's reformation and in 1583 was granted as the Master of Works, or Head of Labor, to the Crown for life. This positioned him as the newly appointed leader of the Scottish stonemasons, and eventually he gained acceptance into the Freemasons. In 1598, during a Freemason conference in Scotland, Shaw, by then a highly regarded mason, penned a set of guidelines called the Shaw Statutes. These were put into place to provide new regulations regarding the Freemasons and Masonic lodges as they changed their status in England from a fellowship to an incorporation. The first stipulation of the Shaw Statutes was that Masons, quote, shall be true to one another and live charitably together as becometh sworn brethren and companions of the craft, end quote. The second declared that the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel, was to be the first and principal lodge of the newly independent Freemasonry. William Shaw is widely considered to be one of the forefathers of the Freemasonry evolution that occurred over the next century. 
So far, we've only talked about one kind of Freemason, the Operative Mason. Operative Masons were those whose profession it was to build and create. They were skilled laborers who dedicated their lives to building churches, schools, houses, palaces, you name it. It was built by the hands of an Operative Mason. For a long time, only Masons who were actively operating could become Freemasons. But that all changed in the early 17th century. Not long after the implementation of the Shaw Statutes, the Freemasons began accepting members who were not working Masons and had no ties to the craft of Masonry. They moved away from being a guild of men who built with their hands to a guild of men that built with their minds. They entered into the age of speculative Freemasonry. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, let's continue our story. In the early 17th century, Freemasonry saw a shift from members who were employed as Masons or Operative Masons to members who were Speculative Masons. These new members were spiritual builders. Rather than work with their hands, those who followed Speculative Freemasonry worked with their minds, souls, and inner strengths. These men followed the Shaw Statutes as guidelines to live by. By the end of the 17th century, speculative Freemasonry was the overwhelmingly dominant section of Masonry. Operative Masons still existed and continued to be part of the organization, but they were no longer the leading aspect of it. From here on out, unless noted, we will be speaking specifically about the speculative Freemasons, as this is the type of Freemasonry that grew to become the powerful and mysterious organization we know today. Historians are still not able to pinpoint the exact reasons for the move to speculative Masonry, which allowed men who weren't Masons by trade to join the organization. But we can't say for sure that the Shaw Statutes were regarded as the initial grounds for the new movement as they temporarily allowed the acceptance of non-Masons into the Freemasonry organization. Some also believe that the now independent Freemasons were unable to secure enough financial stability as much of the work was given to architects rather than Masons. In order to not fall back under the church's command, the lodges began selling admission tickets to anyone who wanted to learn the mysteries of the Freemasons. Through these ticket sales, the Freemasons were able to afford their cost of operations and quickly discontinued the sale of admittance, but continued allowing non-Masons to join their ranks. Though the Mason profession requirement was eradicated, gaining admittance into the Freemasons was not easier. If anything, it became harder. In the 1600s, there were now several qualifications needed to become part of the exclusive club. But two of the most important prerequisites were, and still are, one, belief in a supreme power, be it God or another higher being. And two, as we mentioned earlier, be a free man. Again, in the context of the 14th and 18th centuries, this was absolutely a way to keep people of color and low-class individuals out of the masonry. After a potential brother passes these qualifying steps, he becomes a Freemason apprentice. An apprentice receives the working tools of masonry to study. The first, the 24-inch gauge, was a tool used by operative masons for measuring. But for speculatives, it's used to divide a single day into 24 equal parts. Eight parts should be given to God and fellow masons. Eight parts should be used to study, and the remaining eight are for sleep and rest. The second tool given to apprentices is the common gavel. This was used by operatives to chisel stone into shape for buildings or statues, but for speculatives, it is a metaphorical tool used to break away vices or any behavior that would be detrimental to his mind or body. After some study, the apprentice can progress into the next level, journeyman. As a fellow of the craft, a journeyman is expected to teach intellectual learning and reasoning to apprentices. The tools given to journeymen are the square, the level, and the plumb. The square, so he can have a solid foundation to grow upon. 
The level teaches that unity and equality should be found in diversity and difference. Well, this seems a bit contradictory given their inclusion record. At this point, the group was exclusive to white men. True. Lastly, there's the plum, which teaches that a moral and upright man is the only pure way of life. It's the duty of a journeyman to establish a deep and meaningful connection with each individual member of his lodge. All units must work individually and together, and once this has been accomplished, the mason can move on to the third and final level, that of Master Mason. To become a Master Mason, the journeyman must prove to himself that he has mastered the craft and ideologies that Freemasons value, using all the tools previously mentioned, plus one, the trowel. Used by operative masons to spread mortar or concrete on bricks to stabilize them, the trowel is used by speculative masons to spread brotherly love and affection worldwide and help unite all of mankind. Even though it was harder to join, Freemasonry was growing, and with that growth came a need for more organization. In 1716, Four lodges, two from Scotland and two from England, secretively met in the Covent Garden District of London to discuss ways on how to form a more macroscopic approach to governing the Freemasons. The lodges agreed to convene four times per year and settle any important outstanding disagreements or business needs, leading to the creation of the Grand Lodge. The Grand Lodge is the highest governing body in the Masonry, Also known as Grand Orients, they are independently operated entities that rule over the Masonic temples in a given jurisdiction. The premier Grand Lodge of England opened in London in 1717 and became the first Freemason Grand Lodge. Prior to forming the Grand Lodge, the four independent lodges also agreed to elect a Grand Master each year. The Grand Master presides over the Lodge and oversees the district. Soon after the premier Grand Lodge of England was established, three more were created in Europe. The three lodges in England, Ireland, and Scotland are known as the original Grand Lodges and cemented the Freemason movement as something that was here to stay and leave a mark on the world. This included the New World of the Americas. In the 1730s, the premier Grand Lodge granted some colonies the ability to create their own lodges, but as with the colonies themselves, these lodges were under the ruling of the English Grand Lodge by means of exclusive jurisdiction. Exclusive jurisdiction is the recognition of a singular Grand Lodge that oversees a given geographical area. However, British control did not stop the American colonies from leaving their own mark on Freemasonry. Many of the members of the Constitutional Convention and those who signed the Declaration of Independence were also members of the Freemasons, most notably George Washington, John Adams, Samuel Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. And many believe their Masonic learnings weighed heavily on the Founding Fathers as they planned the events that led to the American Revolution and formation of a new and free nation. Benjamin Franklin was perhaps the most important among them. Franklin became a Freemason in 1730 and was a high-ranking member of the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania within two years. Just a year prior, he published an article defending the freedom of the press a belief he and other Masons held dearly, and as we know, eventually made its way into the Constitution. Franklin then penned a letter to his mother, in which he states, quote, Freemasons have no principles or practices that are inconsistent with religion and good manners, end quote. In 1776, Franklin was appointed by the Continental Congress to write the Declaration of Independence. After finishing his draft, Franklin traveled to France to align with the French Freemasons, knowing the colonists would need their help if they were ever going to win the revolution. He remained in France during the war until he was assured they would indeed enter the revolution and fight against the British. 
I may be speculating a bit here, but the Americans might not have won the war had it not been for Benjamin Franklin's involvement with the Freemasons. Those connections allowed Franklin to get the help that turned the tide. Obviously, there are some privileges gained once someone joins the Freemasons, but securing a win in a revolutionary war certainly takes the top spot there. Franklin, Washington, and company were not the only Americans using the Freemasons as a tool for change during this period. An African-American abolitionist by the name of Prince Hall tried for years to become a Mason, but was unable to simply because of his skin color. Thus began the Prince Hall Freemasonry movement. Born a free man and raised in Massachusetts in the 1730s, Hall encouraged free and enslaved men to pick up arms and help fight against the British in the American Revolution. He believed that if they were to live in this new world, they needed to make their mark. Hall and his comrades helped defeat the king's army, but were never given the proper treatment or respect they deserved. Nevertheless, Hall continued to push for racial equality. Fifteen free black men, with Prince Hall at the lead, petitioned to join the St. John's Masonic Lodge in Boston in late 1775, but were quickly turned down. Only a few months later, the same men propositioned admittance into the Grand Lodge of Ireland, which had a branch located in Boston for their soldiers stationed in the New World. On March 6, 1775, Hall and the men were voted into the masonry and given their own lodge, the African Lodge No. 1. After the revolution ended, the British and Irish masons fled the country, leaving the African Lodge in a state of flux as they had not yet been recognized by the American lodges. Eventually, after Hall's persuasion, the Lodge was granted the right to meet as a proper Lodge by the American Masons. While the other American Lodges did eventually recognize Hall and his Lodge, they were never claimed by a Grand Lodge, which would have given them the opportunity to create other African Lodges and spread the word of Masonry. On September 29, 1784, the African Lodge No. 1 was granted charterhood via the Premier Grand Lodge of England and renamed the African Lodge No. 459. Over the next decades, Hall was able to open subsidiaries of the Premier Grand Lodge in various locations, most notably in Philadelphia and Providence, Rhode Island, before his death on December 4, 1807. Prince Hall's accomplishments are very substantial and should be honored as such, but of course, as a cause of the times, he was not generally accepted by many of his fellow Masons. Racial tension and segregation continued to divide the Freemasons, as it had much of the civilized world. During the 1960s, Prince Hall Masonry saw an uptick in membership as the civil rights movement built momentum. Unfortunately, racial tension still exists in many lodges across the world, but that never stopped Hall or those who took up his passion. Predominantly black Prince Hall Freemasonry lodges are now located worldwide, with a total cumulative membership nearing the tens of thousands. Here's one member talking about it. It means quite a bit. It's been a long time that I've been a Mason, and it's part of the African-American heritage. And Prince Hall is the original African-American lodge in the United States. It's the oldest existing Masonic lodge of people of color. The next person to change Freemasonry was Albert Mackey. Mackey was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. His father was an accomplished physician and teacher who published an instructional arithmetic book to help other educators properly teach their students mathematics. Mackey quickly followed in his father's footsteps and began teaching before he graduated from medical school in 1832. But by 1844, Mackey despised being a doctor and decided to focus on foreign languages, the Middle Ages, and, of course, Freemasonry. After collecting numerous ancient Masonic texts from a local lodge, Mackey began reading up on the Masonic symbols and rituals. He studied nonstop until he seemingly memorized each individual book cover to cover. One major aspect of these books stood out to Mackey 
the rules of Freemasonry were so scattered and lacked any form of regularity that each new book contradicted the last. So he decided to act. Dr. Albert Mackey wrote about the landmarks of Freemasonry in 1858 in his publication, American Quarterly Review of Freemasonry. Before Mackey's contributions, these landmarks did exist, but they were more unwritten rules than anything. Very few were enforced. Mackey published the 25 Landmarks of Freemasonry in 1858 to much adoration and acclaim. While we don't have time to get into all 25, we will highlight the core six landmarks. Mackey believed these to be the unbreakable tenets of Freemasonry. The others were up to interpretation, but these six were not. These were the golden rules. 1. While the lodge is open for business, a Bible must be open. It does not specify to which section, it just needs to be open. 2. All ceremonies and rituals inside a lodge must follow the strict sanctioned guidelines. 3. All openings and closings of the lodge must be graced by giving praise to the great architect of the universe. All paperwork and documentation must have the great architect's symbols printed on it. Landmark 4. All religious and political discussion is prohibited in a lodge. 5. A lodge as a singular group cannot participate in a political campaign, but individuals are encouraged to do so. And finally, Landmark 6, only Masons recognized as true Masons can enter a lodge. Again, Mackey believed these to be the unbreakable rules. But with everything regarding Freemasons, there are always blurred lines. Masons and Grand Lodges that follow the landmarks and the previously mentioned qualifications for becoming a Freemason are practitioners of what's known as regular Freemasonry which, as the name suggests, is the standard for Freemasonry in the modern era. But akin to most religions or movements, the original intent can be segmented or spun off into many different directions, causing chunks of members to split up and create new functions within the larger parent group. The 1890s saw the rise of another inclusionary movement, co-Freemasonry, meaning Freemasonry that was open to both men and women. In 1882, France was going through a drastic feminist and women's suffrage movement. Acclaimed feminist and author Maria Derem co-founded the co-Freemasonry movement along with French senator and civil rights advocate Dr. Georges Martin. Together, they worked tirelessly over the next decade, championing their cause until the first co-Freemason order was opened on April 4th, 1893. Officially titled the International Order of Mixed Freemasonry, Le Droit Human, its mission goal is to, quote, promote progress without abandoning cultural or religious ideas, to unite men and women who agree with Masonic ideals without disrespecting one another, end quote. Le Droit Human was opened and ushered in a new wave of Freemasonry ideologies, the new lodge not only opened its doors to women and other minorities that wanted to join, it also allowed atheists or anyone who did not believe in the supreme being. By 1902, four new co-Freemason lodges were opened in various French districts, and just a year later, the movement found a new home in the United States of America. French immigrant and coal miner Louis Guazieu established the Pennsylvania Association of United Miners in 1866 to protest the disastrous and unhealthy working conditions for miners. Nearly a decade later, the union caught the eye of Columbia professor Antoine Muzzarelli, who was an acclaimed Mason at the time. Muzzarelli and Guazieu immediately made a connection and spoke extensively about workers' rights and what the Masonry could potentially help with. Muzzarelli then contacted Le Droit Human co-founder Georges Martin and suggested they branch out stateside. In 1903, Muzzarelli founded a lodge in Charlevoix, Pennsylvania, under the Grand Orient de France. Guazieu was upset that it was not associated Le Droit Human, so his wife could join as well. 
The early members of the lodge voted to switch allegiances, and on October 19, 1903, Le Dois Humains had their first American lodge, and the co-Freemasonry movement gained steam from there. After a quick expansion of several more lodges, Guazu and Muzzarelli began fighting over the financial stability of their charter. The two grew apart as quickly as they came together. Muzzarelli's life fell into turmoil and he sadly committed suicide on October 15, 1908. Guazu continued to oversee the American co-Freemasons' growth and was elected as its president at a national convention in 1908. However, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression in the 1920s bankrupted many Masons and forced some to abandon the fellowship altogether. Co-Freemasons' membership in the States continued to dwindle until a recovery after World War II. Today, Co-Freemasonry still exists and is prevalent in America and across the globe, though its membership numbers are far surpassed by traditional Freemasonry. As the movements to include racial minorities and women made a huge wave around the world over the last hundred-plus years, why would the vast majority of Masons and Grand Lodges fight to keep their groups exclusive? The answer is simply tradition. Their standards are, quote, true, free, mature men of sound judgment. No bondsmen, no women, no man of scandalous or immoral tendencies, only men of good report, end quote. These are the classic tenets of Freemasonry. But do they stick to traditions because they hold real value in them, or do Masons want to be as exclusionary as possible? We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to conspiracy theories. While their history of exclusivity is part of the basis for Freemason conspiracy theories, their traditions of symbolism and logos, which last to this day, have also given rise to questions from outsiders. The Freemason logo is the very distinct and recognizable square and compass. Even if you didn't understand the meaning, you have more than likely seen this symbol. It features an L-shaped ruler-like device known as the square, fixed as a V, paired with a set of compasses fixed as an A pointing down towards the ruler. The square and compass are thought to symbolize the foundation of Freemasonry. The square represents the actions and duty a Mason needs to accomplish and fulfill, and the compass represents the boundaries given to them by God. Together, with these two tools, a Freemason can achieve any goal. As with all things the Freemasons do, there is a lot of hidden meaning in their symbols. Like almost everything else in Masonry, there is no general accepted interpretation of the symbols, which is why you may sometimes see the square and compass accompanied with an uppercase G in the middle of the two tools. This is mostly common in English-speaking Grand Lodges, and of course, the G has plenty of different meanings, the most common being that it symbolizes God. For non-denominational Masons, the G may stand for the great architect of the universe. Some believe the G to symbolize geometry, the basis of operative masonry, for without geometry, the craft of masonry could not exist. The prevalence and distinction of this logo is the root of many conspiracy theories regarding the Freemasons. It can be found in a number of different locations and places, most of them out in the open for anyone to see. It's even located on American dollar bills. Earlier, we spoke about the rituals Freemasons must participate in and the standards Masons are held up to. These rituals and standards all differ from lodge to lodge and grand lodge to grand lodge, but there are some similarities. Among the more common ones are secret handshakes or passwords to enter the lodges. Now, this is pretty well known among non-Masons, but what's most fascinating is there are several different secret phrases or handshakes or ciphers to gain access or entry to different things. For instance, an apprentice in his early stages may only have the handshake to enter one part of the lodge, or multiple Masons may be given only a syllable of a word and must consult with others to piece together their puzzle to obtain the secretive word. 
Again, these may seem a bit standardized, but this has been in their traditions for centuries. They certainly didn't invent passwords or secret handshakes, but when you think about who the Freemasons count as their members, the secrets and phrases become much more mysterious and powerful. The Freemasons believe themselves not to be a secretive society, but rather a society with secrets. All records of Freemason memberships are stored at local lodges, some with names stretching all the way back to the very beginning of the organization. But many files have been lost or destroyed due to fires and floods over the centuries. The registries are not mandatory, so not every Freemason was required to have their name written in the history books. Some may have had a legitimate excuse for not doing so, but with a group this powerful... It's easy to assume it was for nefarious reasons. I'd like to mention a few more interesting and notable Freemasons. The men we discussed so far were more politically leaning, but there were plenty of people from different walks of life that counted themselves as Freemasons. Men like John Elway, Richard Pryor, Mozart, Voltaire, FDR, Winston Churchill, the Ringling Brothers, Shaquille O'Neal, Henry Ford, Walt Disney, and Steve Wozniak, just to name a few. So, as you can see, it certainly pays to be a Freemason. It's why all these powerful men join and form a bond that lasts longer than life. But does becoming a Freemason automatically secure your future with power and wealth? Or were they all Masons because of their fame and riches? And even though the doctrine of the Freemasons calls for the most upstanding of men, some suspect characters entered the ranks. With six million members, it's hard to totally weed out all the bad actors. Or maybe they allowed them to join, knowing full well what these men were capable of. Men like Andrew Jackson, Silvio Berlusconi, Alistair Crowley, and J. Edgar Hoover may have been given the opportunity to join only because of their sinister outlooks on life. They were men dead set on accumulating power, and perhaps the Freemasons could not let that opportunity pass them up. Certainly, there were mass amounts of privileges in power and influence granted once someone joins the Freemasons. That cannot go unsaid but the chance to network and fraternize with other powerful men was astronomical, and you'd be a fool to not pounce on that. The United Grand Lodge of England strictly prohibits members to take advantage of fellow members to gain riches, but it's easy to see with all these great names that it was clearly never enforced. Today, the Freemasons champion themselves as a charitable organization, basing their acts of charity off noblemen and saints in the early ages who turned their lives over to serve the public. Their mission statement is, goodwill towards men and glory to God in the highest possible way. They believe that giving goodwill will lead to prosperity in the future. Collection plates are passed around at the beginning of sanctioned lodge events, and other varied donations are given via check or valuable memorabilia to be sold, much similar to churches or other nonprofit organizations. It's estimated that the Freemasons donate nearly $5 million per day in any given year. Those funds go to cancer research, child hunger, and countless other forms of charity. But sometimes not all the money goes to independent parties, as the Masons like to claim. The Freemasons are not above helping out their fellow brothers. Quote, Hard times may fall upon another brother in many a way. It is our duty to have a hand and heart ready to help. End quote. And help thy brother they do. Just in 2014, a judge ruled against the United Grand Lodge of England in a suit regarding the amount of charitable funds they give out. In 2010, the Grand Lodge donated more than 82 million pounds to, quote, good causes. But it was discovered that only 25 to 30 percent of that money went to non-Masonic organizations or individuals. The majority of that money went to fellow Freemasons' charities and land donations, and the court ruled it was not philanthropic enough. The tax credit the Grand Lodge was granted years before was rescinded, costing them heavily. 
While the Masons do use a lot of religious ceremonies, doctrines, and use charity to spread their message, it must be said that Freemasonry is not a religion. Yes, Freemasons clearly state this is not a religion, nor is it a group to substitute for any religion. Yes, a belief in God is a requirement, but it's not belief in the God, it only requires belief in a God, the supreme being or grand architect of the universe, a higher power that shows grace and trueness to all men who follow his guidance, whatever that may mean to individual Masons. Masons approve of every religion and do not favor one over the other. But as mentioned before, some Grand Lodges do accept atheists. There's plenty of contradictory evidence that points to Freemasonry being a theology of some order. It's these instances of double-talk and indecisiveness that fuel the fires of the anti-Masonry movement. And some in the movement are individuals with critiques regarding the secrecy of the Masons. Some are religious fanatics who take umbrage with the alleged satanic aspects. But all feel that the Freemasons are not the cause for good they proclaim to be. The earliest known anti-Mason declaration was from a Presbyterian minister in 1698. In it, the minister writes, quote, They are the Antichrist, which was to come, leading men from fear of God. For how should men meet in secret places and with secret signs, taking care that none observe them to do the work of God? Are not these the ways of evildoers? Knowing how that God observeth privily them that sit in darkness, they shall be smitten and the secrets of their hearts laid bare. Mingle not among this corrupt people, lest you be found so at the world's conflagration. End quote. In 1820, a New York based stoneworker, William Morgan, was very outspoken against the organization. Morgan professed that he learned of all the secrets of the Freemasons and was willing to expose their lies in his upcoming book. But in 1826, Morgan disappeared, and his body was never found. It's widely speculated that New York City Masons kidnapped and murdered Morgan to silence his outcries. Once word of his disappearance became public knowledge, a widespread panic began to take foot against the Freemasons. In 1828, noted newspaper publisher Thurlow Weed established the Anti-Mason Political Party, the first third party in American political history, and campaigned against known Freemason Andrew Jackson. In 1832, the anti-Masonic candidate William Wirt won 7.8% of the vote and won Vermont. By 1835, the anti-Mason party was on the downslope as quickly as it arose, with most of the members joining the Whig party. Adolf Hitler was also not a huge fan of the Freemasons. He viewed them as the opposition during the National Socialist rise to power in 1930s Germany. The Nazis used their infamous propaganda to diminish the Masons, just as it did to the Jews, the Roma, and every other societal group it attempted to destroy. Freemasons were held in contempt as political prisoners, with upside-down red triangles fashioned to their prison camp garb. It's estimated that 80,000 to 200,000 Freemasons were killed in concentration camps. Another common critique of Masonry is that their loyalties defaulted to other Masons and the Freemason organization as a whole, rather than with their home countries. Part of the Freemasonry tenets include a section about testifying against other Masons, and many believe the Freemasons took advantage of this and would frequently cover up crimes, however heinous the alleged incident. Which is what led to the Unlawful Societies Act of 1799, a bill passed in the United Kingdom that helped the government specifically target and suppress, quote, societies established for seditious and treasonable purposes, end quote, meaning any society or organization that required an oath unauthorized by the law can and will be subjected to punishment. All societies except, of course, the Freemasons. 
Yes, once this bill was passed, many high-ranking Masons argued that the Freemasons was a historic and ancient group and therefore should be allowed to continue as such. After many meetings with the UK leaders, it was agreed upon that the Masons would be allowed to continue as long as they'd send membership records and meeting times to the government when warranted. But there's no evidence to show the Freemasons did, in fact, give up those records when asked. Many Freemasons took part in the development of the United States Constitution and numerous other state doctrines, but they certainly used this to their advantage and placed Masonic ideals in these documents. So, the allegations of brotherhood over nationhood don't necessarily require mental gymnastics. The Freemasons thrive in the murky waters of secrecy, so we may never know their true intentions. That concludes the official story of the secretive and ancient fraternal organization of the Freemasons. Next week, we'll take a deep dive into the more conspiratorial elements of this infamous group. We aren't endorsing these theories, just presenting them. Conspiracy theory number one. With all of the ancient rituals, landmarks, and symbols... Are the Freemasons not just a fraternal social club, but instead devil worshippers? Conspiracy theory number two. Are Freemasons aliens or lizard people? Are they mysterious beings sent by some dark, nefarious, all-seeing master to reign over us? Conspiracy theory number three. And finally, do the Freemasons really control everything? With all of these extremely powerful individuals in their ranks, it's hard to think otherwise. Do they use their charitable giving to blind us to the actual truth and sinister nature of the organization? It's one of the biggest and most widespread conspiracies of our time, and something we all yearn to know the answer to. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to subscribe. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week as we continue our second look at the Freemasons. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Dylan Slocum and Richard Ward and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.